This is an ABC podcast. Are you someone who loves a particular sport or team, but you find aspects of the culture surrounding it at odds with your own values? Or indeed, are you perplexed by how other people can be sports fans when all sorts of bad behaviour goes down? Hello, I'm Amanda Smith, and this is Sporty. It's not that easy being a sports fan these days. Like, how do you continue to support your football or cricket team when a star player is up on sexual assault charges? or when there's nasty racism on or off the field, or when the sport itself is likely causing long-term damage to the brains of those playing. These are dilemmas that can be tricky to reconcile, and they're the sorts of things discussed by Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson in a book called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. They're both sports writers in the United States. Kavitha Davidson writes for The Athletic. She's in New York. And Jessica Luther writes freelance and based in Austin, Texas. Also with us to discuss dilemmas for the modern sports fan is Titus O'Reilly in Melbourne, Australia. Titus performs, podcasts and writes about sport in a satirical sort of way. He's the author of A Sporting Chance, about Australian sporting scandals. Also, Please Gamble Irresponsibly, about sports gambling in Australia. And Cheat, which is self-explanatory. Now look, the thing is, with any of those examples I mentioned, anyone who's not a sports fan would just say, well, don't follow that sport or team or player anymore. No one's making you. But Jessica, it's not that simple, is it? Right. A lot of sports fans have their identity tied into the team that they love. And these are things that are formed when people are very young. In my own case, like it was generational fandom uh, for the university that I went to. Both of my parents went there. I grew up rooting for that school and that team. And I didn't know anything else. So the idea of just abandoning it whenever there's any kind of issue within that team, it's It's so ridiculous on its face when it is such an important part of who you are. Well, Titus, I certainly know that the maternity ward can be the place where the covenant is sealed when some relative turns up with a tiny little jumper in the club colours or a signed match ball for the the new baby. What have you seen or done on that score? I know that I was indoctrinated from a very early age and I think the key point about if you're not happy with the way sport's operating to vacate the field, the problem with that, especially in Australia, but I know this is the case in America with universities and a lot of places too, the power structures of Australia run through, especially in Melbourne, the AFL football, the the people on the boards are the most powerful people in town of the clubs. And so to say to a group of people, you know, whether that be women or Indigenous people here, if you're not happy, don't be a part of it. Well, that's the problem. They're actually leaving society, not just sport. So it's not just a case of following a a simple club. It's actually being centred to the, probably in Australia, the biggest cultural power in the country. And, And that's why it needs to be open to everyone. Yeah. 
So, so Kavitha, what, what's the, following on from what Jessica was saying too, what's the feeling then when your beloved team or player does something that you objectively find reprehensible? I think that, you know, fandom doesn't exist in a monolith. And so how fans react to something like that is so varied. And we did 100 interviews for this book. And no two fans said the same thing. You know, we got people who said, I just cannot watch football anymore. You know, on Sundays, when my family's watching football, I go upstairs. And then we got fans who've said, you know, I can't give this up. It's too much a part of who I am. Um, so, for example, we had a, a Yankee fan who, when the Yankees signed a, a player, Aroldis Chapman, who was accused of domestic violence, she couldn't root for him, but she couldn't stop rooting for the Yankees. So what she did was she set up a charity that donated a dollar to an anti-domestic violence advocacy group every time he recorded a strikeout. So at least she felt that she was getting, she was doing some good from still rooting for her team. But it's hard. As Jessica said, you know, your fandom is so wrapped up in your identity. And that's why it's so difficult to contend with some of these dilemmas. Titus, in in a way, you make your living out of sports people behaving badly. Uh, I think you've said before that sports people doing stupid things is a resource that's never going to run out. Are you, though, condoning or condemning bad behaviour? When I started, it was really condemning. I mean, there's a difference here between a player going out and, say, getting drunk and passing out in public and sort of that's all they've ever done. You know, we're all human. I'm not about punishing great mistakes. My issue is with the athletes that we've gotten various sports in Australia who have multiple, say, domestic violence cases against them but are still allowed either back to play or allowed to be commentators on TV. Um, and so that's where, you know, I find you have almost a protection racket run amongst those that run the sport and represent it on TV who protect these players because they're, they're friends and they're all of alike. When you actually need to give voice to the community of fans who increasingly majority don't tolerate this stuff and actually say this is not okay. So there's a battle that goes on on a level between the average fan and what they would like the sport to be and those in the positions of power actually running it and, and pointing out that difference is actually where a lot of it comes from. Yeah. Jessica, you actually did stop following a sport, a team that you loved, didn't you? Tell us about what that was and how and why you gave it away. Yeah, so my great love for most of my life was the Florida State football team, American football team. That's the university that my parents went to. It was the only school I applied to to go for college because I wanted to watch Florida State football. And I did. And it was wonderful. While I was there. We were the best team in the in the country at the time. And as an adult, used to plan my fall season around their football schedule. It was a very, very big deal to me. Uh, and then starting in 2013, they were one of the high profile cases of ignoring gendered violence by one of their top players, their quarterback. And that is my specialty. That is the thing that I study and I report on the most is gendered violence in college sports. And I hung on for a few years and I just got worn down by how much I knew and understood about how athletic departments at universities work and how little they often seem to care about the people who are harmed, the sort of collateral damage of these big money programs. And it just got to be, I'm like a sad person to watch college football with. <laughs> uh, and I was bumming myself out. I didn't get the sort of 
emotional high that I used to get from watching and it just became not worth it to me anymore. And so I couldn't today tell you who coaches the team. I have no idea. Even saying that out loud makes me sad to know that that's what it's come to. But I just couldn't do it personally anymore. Kavitha, as you mentioned, there are other less dramatic ways that fans have found to maintain their support for a team. And that isn't just about, you know, I guess, burying your head in the sand. You you talked about the New York Yankees baseball fan who found a way to ease her conscience. Um, I wonder, though, with either you, Kavitha, or Jessica, how you feel about the concussion issue in, for example, American football and ice hockey. Kavitha? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the concussion issue is one of the more difficult ones to contend with and to compartmentalize. No pun intended, because you were talking about literally compartmentalizing a part of your brain. Um, And, you know, I think that when it comes down to it, so many of the issues that we talk about have gray areas. And, you know, there's not any one kind of moralistic way to navigate a lot of those issues. It's a lot more black and white with concussions, unfortunately. And then that presents a really unique dilemma in that there's really no such thing as safe football. That just doesn't exist. You know, there is a world in which athletes don't commit domestic violence and in which, you know, teams don't benefit from unbridled corporate welfare. But there's not a world in which football is safe and doesn't cause damage to players' bodies and brains. So I think that that one is very, very difficult to contend with. And I think a lot of people, the more that they work in this industry, the more that they cover football, um, a lot of people have said, you know, it gets increasingly difficult to watch and enjoy football as the years go on. And that's not to denigrate people who still get immense enjoyment from it. And Lord knows, like I, you know, if a game is on, if a football game is on, I will absolutely watch it and derive pleasure from it. But at the same time, I can't derive pleasure from those bone shattering hits that we used to have in, in DVD compilations. You know, the violence, the brutality of football is a feature, not a bug. It's celebrated. So that for me becomes increasingly difficult to contend with. And Jessica, was the concussion issue uh, another part of the reason why you gave up watching college football, supporting college football? Yeah, it absolutely was. I have trouble watching, as Kavitha said, the bone crushing hits. And I can remember getting like liking that sound like, oh, big hit, you know, and reacting to it emotionally. And now I just get so worried for what that means for that player. Uh, the thing that gets me, we, we mainly talk about it with professional sports, but, you know, millions of kids play football in America, young, and I'm sure rugby in Australia. And Australian football. Yeah, yeah, and Australian football. And we don't really talk about youth as much as we should and the impact on them. And that's where it becomes really difficult. Like we can say all sorts of things about the agency of professional players to make choices and all sorts of stuff. Uh really hard for me when we consider what is happening to the brains of children who are playing these sports. Mm. Now, Titus, you've done a lot of research trying to understand the deep links between sport and gambling in Australia, Uh, historically, most obviously with horse racing, but now across pretty well any sport. What, What troubles you about that and how does it affect your enthusiasm for following sport? Well, Australia 
for a hundred years gambling on anything but horse racing and actually at the racetrack itself you had to be was the only legal way of gambling all the other ways were completely illegal and of course there was a fairly large illegal market for it and then the internet has changed all that we're in australia now and i know we're we're probably a few years ahead of america who've had some supreme court decisions that have allowed states to set their gambling rules so we're awash in gambling and have been for some time and the problem you see is kids now think in gambling terms of odds all the time they're taught that gambling is normal and you should be doing it with your friends and if you're not you're sort of a weird person and what's happened is the sporting codes themselves right up to the administrators of the sporting codes to the tv and newspapers that cover it um, to all the various players are now really in the pocket of gambling. It's the only growing advertising and it underpins so much of it. And so you've got no one able to speak out about the harms of gambling. The whole the whole system is captured. I'm not of a belief that it should all be banned because I think that just pushes it underground. But it's a it's a it's something when, you know, you literally have gambling ads interrupting other gambling ads during the sports coverage that it's really you're watching gambling ads these days occasionally punctuated by some football and in Australia, you know, where the, where the number one losers to gambling in the world on a per capita basis. We're just so far ahead and it causes great social upheaval. And um, these things we're all talking about, they, they just do take away that little bit of enjoyment that you should be having. I feel like I've written books about it and spoken about it because I feel like no one else is. <laughs> so you kind of have to do it. I mean, to that point, I mean, have you ever watched someone watching a game just because they have a bet on it? They are absolutely not enjoying that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not fun for them. And and I, I mean, I I'm, I try really hard not to moralize gambling or, or, or police other people's fandoms, but when the bet is the only impetus, is the only stakes you have in in watching these sports, yeah, whenever I witness these people, um, good friends of mine at bars, they're not having fun. <laughs> no, I mean, this is the thing. It takes the purpose of the sport away in many ways mm. to be something else. And then the research I've done and, you know, the links to suicide, to domestic violence, uh, to financial ruin for people with gambling, um, to see a sporting organisation and teams just so wholeheartedly embrace it for the dollar with no thought to, you know, what they talk about, their social responsibility all the time. It's a perversion of what sport's meant to actually be about. And it's something that is only going to become bigger because the money is just, you know, globally is just so big. Well, look, another perversion is uh, sports doping. Jessica, when you're watching a sport or an event that has a history of doping, you know, the Tour de France is, is the big one, but lots of Olympic events too. To what extent does that uh, kind of knowledge, that history taint the experience for you? Well, I will admit that I live in Austin, Texas, which is the home of Lance Armstrong. And so it was here that we followed him we claimed him uh, and people were very angry when it turned out that he had been doping, even though like all the signs pointed to it. And I can remember myself personally being like, I just didn't want to believe it. I was like, no, his heart can pump blood faster. Like that made him that much better at cycling than everyone else in the world. And you do just feel this kind of... Uh, they duped you like that you're the fool. And yet we allow people, you know, marathon runners will move to high altitudes to run in a specific setting to like 
you know, make everything better. The more money you have, the more you can do things like that. There's no kind of equal playing field. And yet we do have this like intense reaction to the idea that someone is doping and getting an unfair advantage over someone else. I do think it matters for health. Like you know, we don't want people out there doing things that could like really harm them or encourage other people to do things that would really harm them. But when you start to dig down on doping and like, what is it? It, it is harder to pin down than you think it is. Yeah, especially, as you say, when there are all sorts of other permitted performance-enhancing technologies that are not uh, equally distributed among all competitors. You're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith, joined by American sports writers Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson, authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, and Titus O'Reilly, the author of numerous books about lying and cheating and gambling in Australian sport. Now, I wonder how you feel about sponsors being the moral arbiters in sport. So what I mean is like withdrawing or threatening to withdraw their sponsorship when something untoward happens. For example, Titus, um, the ball tampering crisis in Australian cricket, Sandpaper Gate a couple of years ago, the players involved and Cricket Australia lost big sponsorship dollars over that. What do you think of it being the corporate sponsors who are controlling the moral high ground of sport? Well, the concern for me is that the fact it's happening is often because the various sports teams or individuals or administrations have vacated the field on these things and are not making the decisions. And so it's actually the corporates reflecting the community anger better than the reading of it by these sporting people. We had a case of in the Collingwood Football Club had a racism report come out and was was very badly handled. And it was actually Nike coming out of America saying, we're not going to sponsor you if this isn't dealt with properly that led to it actually being taken seriously. So we've got this really weird situation where corporates are actually doing what these sporting administrations should be doing anyway. It shouldn't get to the point where sponsors are having to threaten to leave. These sporting organisations should be reading where society is heading and reflecting it a lot faster. Yeah, well, another example of that, Jessica, is with the long-running debate in American sports over the use of names and mascots that Native people in America find disrespectful. In the case of Washington's National Football League team, it was, again, sponsors who forced the American Indian mascot to be dropped from the team, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a slur. Like the name was actually a slur for Native people in the US. And they have been asking for like half a century for them to change the name. And the owner had dug in his heels. And then lo and behold, yeah, there was a lot of pressure in the US following the murder of George Floyd and all the protests around Black Lives Matter that really like spurred a lot of change. And it was finally, Kavitha, correct me if I'm wrong, it was FedEx. It was FedEx, Nike, and Pepsi. But FedEx was the biggest one because they have the naming rights to their field. Yeah, and they forced the issue. And I totally agree with Titus that I wish that sporting entities would do the right thing of when it's objectively right to get rid of a slur as the name of your mascot. Um, but we live in a capitalist society, and if that's what it's going to take, I was very thankful that that changed because I really didn't believe that that was something that was going to happen. It, it shouldn't have taken 50 years of Native people fighting for this and then eventually corporate 
pressure to make this happen. Like this would have just been the right thing to do. Now, I am also a pragmatist and my background in sports writing is in financial reporting and sports business reporting. So I understand that the only way you actually change things is not for the moral imperative or because it's the right thing to do. It's because it will move the needle on the dollars and the bottom line. So that being said, I do wish that people would just do the right thing, but I kind of don't care (laughs) anymore that if what it takes to have the right thing done is corporate pressure and, you know, threatening the bottom line, then that's just where we are here. Well, now here's here's an issue that has come bizarrely full circle. Um, and it's it's players kneeling at the start of a game when their national anthem's being played, taking a knee. I'll explain how it's come full circle in a moment. But Jessica, for starters, just remind us where with whom taking a knee started and the consequences it had. Yeah, it was the preseason of the NFL here in the US. It was then San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Uh, He first sat during the national anthem. This was after a summer where we saw multiple unarmed black men killed by the state, by the police. And when finally the media noticed, he was three games into it. There was a lot of uproar and Uh, It was suggested that he kneel, that that would be less offensive to people who are angry about it. And so he began to kneel during the national anthem as a reflection of his protest against this murder of black men and women in the U.S. And other players began to join him. And it all took on a sort of a life of its own at the point when uh, then presidential candidate Donald Trump and then eventually President Trump was very vocal against Colin Kaepernick and other teammates of his other players in the NFL doing this. And so there was a point uh, he (laughs) advocated for them to be fired. And then basically the whole league started kneeling. We saw WNBA players kneeling. It kind of spread all throughout sport. And then we've seen it globally now. But it did effectively end Colin Kaepernick's football career, didn't it? Yeah, they blackballed him. He never will never see him play professional football again because of that choice that he made. And the reaction to it. Yeah. And as you say, it subsequently has been adopted by many athletes in different sports around the world as a statement uh, against racism and without them getting into trouble for doing it. And in fact, it's been sort of to the contrary in some ways, Titus. At the um, T20 Cricket Men's World Cup, the South African player Quentin de Kock got into trouble for not taking a knee and Cricket South Africa, the ruling body for the sport in South Africa, issued a specific directive that it was mandatory for South Africa players to do so for the rest of the tournament. What I wonder, Titus, is if there's no longer anything subversive about a gesture like this because the authorities are actually demanding it, does it lose its power? I think there is a problem when protests are no longer voluntary because it's not reflecting the true will of everyone, even if you don't agree with someone refusing to protest. But I sort of move past the protests eventually and to my point, it's what are people doing in action? What are these organisations doing? And, you know, we've heard a lot of great things being said in the NRL about domestic violence and the AFL about various Indigenous and racist issues. Yet the actions aren't there to back it up. And really that's words and protests are great and can have an impact, but it's really 
judging these organisations on what they actually do, not them just telling players they have to protest when they're not necessarily handling racism properly in their own backyard. We've seen this in the, in the United States in several different ways. We've seen players not kneeling with other players being criticized for it because it, it seems like a lack of solidarity and a lack of understanding for what particularly Black teammates and athletes go through on a day-to-day basis. I mean, whether it loses its power, sure. I mean, a gesture is empty if it's compulsory, right? Protest should not be something that is mandatory. But at the same time, I think there is something to be said about, you know, just as we just talked about public pressure from sponsors forcing the right thing to eventually come through. I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, public pressure for doing the right thing, for showing solidarity, eventually changing people's minds and eventually serving that progress. Yeah. Jessica, since you've been thinking hard about loving sports when they don't love you back. What is what are some changes, some positive changes that you've seen happen? Uh, well, I wonder, for example, women's sports. Yeah, I think sort of the light that we all look to is the WNBA here in the States. Those women, those players have really formed a very strong union. They work together as a team. Uh, the way that they have addressed social issues. I mean, they were protesting the summer before Colin Kaepernick began protesting. Like they were doing it first. They were fined and the league had to rescind those fines because people were so angry at them for finding them <laughs> for protesting. And they're also phenomenal athletes and their sport is so fun to watch. Their league is so fun to watch. And so, yeah, I often turn to women's professional sports when I uh, need to feel better about the sporting landscape. <laughs> well, let me finally ask each of you, can the modern sports fan be wholly carefree and irrational in their support and, uh, and love their sport or team or player unconditionally? Kavitha? I mean, I think they can. I think you hear that from people whenever they tell you to stick to sports. I think that that's a privilege, though. I think that not every fan can just put aside their identities and their lived experience to enjoy sports without having an eye toward some of the problematic aspects of it. But at the same time, you know, our purpose in writing the book was because we love sports so much and we see the value that you can get out of it and how good sports can be when they're when they're great. And and we just want them to live up to that promise. Titus? It is hard and to get yourself through it, it's it's focusing on the groups that are being built around. I know in AFL football there's you know, groups of women and men who collectively are working very hard to change things. And one of the problems we have that these sports are often behind with the community is they're made up of not the community. And so I think the best thing in sort of feeling not terrible about it is taking some level of action and being a voice to change who's running these sports because that's how we'll ultimately get things that I think the majority of us want around equality and things like that. And and that is slowly happening. There have been victories. It's not all doom and gloom. There's just a lot of work to do. And I think to do that, we need to have what is one of the great community cultural things in life reflect the true community. And I think if we can do that, we've, we've got a chance. Jessica? Yeah, I'm not sure if you can just watch it on critically at all. But I think maybe in little pockets, every once in a while, I find myself just totally into whatever sport that I'm watching and I'm not 
<laughs> calculating all the problematic things about the hierarchy around it or the organization. I think that is possible even when you're one of us. <laughs> uh, but no, as Kavitha said, it's a total privilege to come to this without having to see all the stuff around it. And I wish that that was possible. That's what we're working towards. And I really liked what Titus had to say about how there you look to the communities within sport that are doing the work right now and, and they are there and you can be a part of that. And I think that's beautiful. And Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson are sports writers based in the United States and joint authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. And Titus O'Reilly is an Australian comedian and satirist who writes seriously about sport in a funny kind of way. Thanks to you all. Kavitha, thank you. Thank you for having us. Jessica, thanks to you. Thank you. And Titus, thank you. Pleasure as always. Thank you. And as always... Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit, and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.